Welcome to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, where we put the pedal to the metal when it comes to uncovering the forbidden and the suppressed. Hello and welcome. I'm Michael Hoffman, and today another controversial topic which we hope will prove enlightening, and that is hate speech. The Zionist and woke position on book banning and cancel culture is consonant with the error has no rights dictum of the papal church, the Renaissance papal church, that is, which many Protestants shared. For example, Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford's influential book, Free Disputation Against Pretended Liberty of Conscience. Whereas the open-minded libertarian standard upholding the Jeffersonian error-has-rights concept insists that claims of authoritative truth must be debated, investigated, and, if necessary, resisted, as conscience requires. This radical freedom, the legacy of the New World's American Revolution, rigorously opposes the Old World dogma that error has no rights. That dogma, and the Inquisition that almost always follows in its wake, has been revived on the left by critical race theory and on the right by hypocrites such as Barry Weiss and Ben Shapiro, Wesley Yang, Kimberly Strassel, Christopher Rufo, Rod Dreher, and other leading right-wing critics of cancel culture have little or nothing to say contra the censorship of pro-Palestinian speech advocated by their heroine, cancel commissar Barry Weiss, when she was a New York Times writer a record she has not repudiated, and calls from nationally syndicated talk show host Ben Shapiro to cancel Minister Louis Farrakhan on social media. These two are only the tip of the conservative censorship lance. Their selective indignation subverts the whole Weltanschauung of supposed conservative free speech advocacy. Their hypocrisy ensures that the noble ideals of the First Amendment will be circumscribed by the partisan requirements of right-wing obeisance to Israeli idols. While left-wing subservience to canonical Marxist and gender axioms cripple the left's self-advertised aspiration to build a better world. Error has rights, because we do not trust any earthly power to decide for the people what is right or wrong, an authority that belongs to God alone, not the fallible totalitarian zealots in government, media, and academia who are perennially prone to declare their opinions as fact while compelling the rest of us to conform to their dictated truths. My right to dissent from your certitude cannot exist unless, commensurate with the presumption that I am in error, my inalienable right to the expression of and belief in my error is nonetheless guaranteed. History teaches that those condemned in the past as being in heresy and error are found in subsequent centuries to have been visionary inventors, scientists, writers, and activists. The advancement of knowledge and the progress of the human race depends upon the absolute right to be wrong. Part of that is in the area of hate speech, and we have a rather convenient mechanism for suppressing our adversaries' opinions, and that is to declare their speech hateful. 
Whoever is in power by that ruse can conspire to demonize as hate speech whatever undercuts their dogma. Conservatives claim to understand that Machiavellian tactic, yet they themselves are guilty of it when it comes to cooperating with the suppression of radical critiques of Talmudic hate speech and the Talmudic basis of the Zionist colony's violence and dispossession of Palestinians. Conservatives can't go there because they know if they do, they will be canceled, so they dare not protest it. In this broadcast, we are going to undertake an examination in fairly minute detail of the foundations of Talmudic hate speech, which results in real-world harm to Palestinians, but is almost never a subject of tracking or statistics compiling on the part of the professional self-described hate speech trackers, or of media outlets such as the New York Times or CBS News. Bear with us as we walk you through what is terra incognita to a majority of people. We desire to make our case airtight, and that entails patient documentation and listeners capable and interested in sustained concentration. We remind you that our own books and writings are available for purchase at revisionisthistory.org, and we are based in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, at Box 849, Coeur d'Alene, 83816. Studies of Orthodox Judaic believers, that is, followers of the post-Second Temple Judaism, faithful to the Mishnah, the Gemara, and derivative sacred texts, are representative of the theology of the ancient Pharisees, and these have almost always been marked by two extremes, either giddy approbation or its antipode, atavistic contempt. Both views are predicated on fallacious judgments. In the former case, credulous acceptance of pious sloganeering and lachrymose self-righteousness, and in the other, a callous dismissal of the humanity of those who are captive to Talmudism, along with a failure to discern in our own behavior and beliefs those sins for which we censure the rabbis. Nothing in this study is to be construed as giving aid and comfort to Jew-haters, anti-Semites, or pseudo-Christians who direct detestation toward or advocate the oppression of Judaic persons. Our work entails the analysis of iniquitous ideas and texts, never people. Like the Gentiles, Judaic persons are fully human beings, deserving of dignity, respect, compassionate understanding, and love, having been made in the image and likeness of God. Christians are enjoined by our Savior to, quote, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. These are among the most profound, counterintuitive words of wisdom ever spoken, exemplifying the crux of the theology of the believers who make up the true Klau Israel, that is, people of biblical Israel. There are some worldly ones who, upon discovering the extent to which they or others may have been cursed, hated, or spitefully used by certain adherents of Orthodox Judaism, proceed to disobey, or at the least derogate, the command of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 44. By this act of disobedience, they are engaging in the mockery of becoming what they oppose, a Talmudist in spirit and a Christian in name only. 
Historically, the counterfeit of Christ's ecclesia has sometimes been termed churchianity, and it was this imposter institution bearing the name of Christ that mirrored the revenge and contempt which it denounced as the apex of evil when practiced by rabbis. This bipolar approach to Judaism severely undercut Christendom's evangelical mission and served demonic spirits in so doing. Jesus defined our love for him very sharply and clearly. If we love him, then we will keep his commandments. Matthew 5 verse 44 is one of our Savior's commands which we must place uppermost in our minds as we proceed to explore the theology of the Talmud. Furthermore, believers in rabbinic Judaism are urgently in need of our concern and missionary effort. In addition to the obvious reason that they have refused a saving faith in their Messiah, Jesus, the negative consequences of institutionalizing that rejection are enormous. Oppression by Talmudic and cognate theological dictates, including the suffocating, tyrannical micromanagement of their lives. For example, the misnamed laws of family purity, halakos of nida, for instance, are among the most reprehensible forms of oppression of women ever devised. And my book, Judaism Discovered, you can find that information on pages 729 to 747. One illustration is the requirement that Jewish women remove from their homes every speck of chametz, leavened grain of any type, wheats, wheat, oats, etc. This dictate is a source of neurosis and misery. Not even a crumb may be present in her home during the eight days of Pesach, Passover. Her failure to totally eradicate every particle is believed to invite a curse on the family due to the supposed negligence of the wife. In the Kabbalistic text, Hametz represents a Jew's individuality, something which, the Orthodox rabbis assert, must be eliminated at all costs. Another wretched factor is Talmudism's incitement to unethical conduct. Among the dense thicket of heinous halakhic injunctions is the command for Judaic males to become completely drunk on alcohol every year on the holy day of Purim, and that's in the Babylonian Talmud tractate Megillah 7b. Then there is the admonition to Judaics in, in Babylonian Talmud tractate Moed Katan 17a to perpetrate evil in secret. Quote, if one sees his yetzer hara, that is his evil inclination, gaining sway over him, let him go where he is not known, put on sordid clothing, and do the evil that his heart desires. End quote. The lives of their own unborn babies are also forfeit in Orthodox Talmudism. It was the ruling of the famed rabbinic lawgiver Rashi, that is Shlomo Yeshaki, that a Judaic baby, before being born, is not a human being with a soul, that is, with a nefesh. According to rabbinic law, it is permitted to kill the dehumanized child with abortion in situations where the unborn infant is considered a pursuer, or rodef, who represents a danger to the mother. And you will find that injunction in the Babylonian Talmud in Tractate Sanhedrin, 72b, as well as in Rabbi Moses Mamamadi's Mishnah Torah, Sefer Nezikim. The exposition in this study of radical truths concerning the theology and practice of Orthodox Judaism is imperative for the advancement of both the gospel and human reason. 
as well as for the protection of innocent human beings, particularly in Palestine and Lebanon. It is intended equally for the enlightenment and liberation of Judaic people and non-Judaic people, and it is toward those ends, and in that spirit alone, that we have undertaken this work. It is worth noting that on the authority of the Law of the Rabbis in the Babylonian Talmud in Barakat 58a, the publication of this study that you are listening to renders me, its author, a rodef, that is, a homicidal pursuer. Now, according to the law of Din Rodef, a person designated a Rodef is liable to be killed on sight. In Babylonian Talmud Barakat 58a, an interlocutor is asking a rabbi residing in Persia about the racist denigration of non-Jews. The religious authority being questioned, Rabbi Sheila, responds to the questioner by stating that Gentiles are beasts of burden, donkeys. Rabbi Sheila then deduces that the man who is the questioner is going to report this racist denigration of non-Jews to the rulers of Persia. At that point, the Talmud states, quote, this man has the legal status of a Rodef, end quote. This section of Barakat 58a concludes with the rabbi righteously killing the would-be reporter. The Talmudic permission for the murder of reporters and scholars who testify to the factual content of rabbinic law has never been rescinded. The Rodef is also found among those who seek to return land stolen from the Palestinians. As recently as November 4, 1995, a dramatic murder of an individual classified as a Rodef took place in Tel Aviv, when no less an eminent personage than the Israeli Prime Minister himself, Yitzhak Rabin, who sought a land-for-peace treaty with the Palestinians, was gunned down by Igal Amir, a zealous Israeli Talmud student. He was an alumnus of Bar-Ilan University, and Mr. Amir specifically cited the Talmud as his justification for murdering the Israeli Prime Minister, although you will seldom hear or see that fact in print. It has been buried. The founding legal texts of Rabbinic Judaism are the Mishnah and the Gemara. They are collectively termed the Torah Shibil Pach, that is to say, the oral law committed to writing as the Talmud Bavli, or Babylonian Talmud. According to this Talmud, God himself is subservient to the rabbis. Hard to believe? Here's the quote. Since God already gave the Torah to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, we no longer pay attention to heavenly voices. God must submit to the decision of a majority vote of the rabbis. That's what it says in Babylonian tractate Bava Metzvia 59b. And no, we haven't taken it out of context. Consequently, the word of God, that is the actual scriptures, are subordinate to the traditions of the rabbis. These traditions were previously oral. They were committed to writing first as the Mishnah in the early centuries, the so-called Tanaitic era, after the crucifixion of Israel's Messiah. The subsequent portion of the Talmudic canon, the Gemara, produced mainly during the Amorim era, that is circa 300 to 450 AD, was written in the Aramaic language. The Babylonian Talmud, as distinct from the Jerusalem Talmud, which is not authoritative, is the holiest text of the religion of Judaism. The revered Pharisaic sages of blessed memory decree this themselves in the Talmud. 
in Tractate Shabbat 15c and Baba Metzviah 33a, we see the three declarations of the much-honored, goyim-despising Rabbi Shimon ben Yohei, one of the most adored of all the sages. Yohei wrote, quote, A, he who occupies himself with scripture gains merit that is no merit. B, he who occupies himself with Mishnah gains merit for which people receive a reward. C, he who occupies himself with Talmud, there is no source of merit greater than this. End quote. What part of the preceding unimpeachable statement from the supreme sacred book of Orthodox Judaism do Gentiles and Christians not understand? Old Testament law is a distant second in Orthodox Judaism. It is studied, misapplied, and nullified by being read through the distorting prism of the Talmud. The non-biblical basis of Orthodox Judaism is acknowledged in the Mishnah, quote, the laws concerning the Sabbath, festal offerings, and acts of trespass are as mountains hanging by a hair, for they have scant scriptural basis, but many laws. And quote from Mishnah Hagiga 1.8. So Torah is Orthodox Judaism's spurious badge of authority. The rabbis proclaim that they have the Torah, have mastered the Torah, based their laws on the Torah, and that they are Torah true. Yet these rabbinic claims are a deceptive play on words, for the Torah upon which they base their laws is not the Old Testament, but the counterfeit Torah Shibilpech. Hence, when the rabbis are acclaiming their relationship with the Torah, Christians are deceived into imagining that the rabbis are hearkening to their allegiance to the Old Testament, the Torah Shibikchav. When Orthodox Judaism's laws emanate from the man-made Talmud Bavli, which is the Torah they regard as supreme. In 2010, something of a confession concerning this fact came to the fore in the Judaic media in an article at ynetnews.com of February 10th, 2010, titled, Time to Face Haredi Secret, Efrat Shapira Rosenberg reported a remarkable admission about the Orthodox Haredi, that is to say, Hasidic Judaics, quote, not long ago, I happened to speak with a young man who studies at one of the flagships of the Haredi Yeshiva, that is, Talmudic Academy, the Haredi Yeshiva world, a yeshiva which is no doubt among the most important and elitist. We spoke about various issues, and at one point I referred to a certain biblical character I'm especially fond of. This figure was not one of the Bible's leading actors like Abraham or Moses, but it was not a particularly marginal character either, but rather an interesting and significant one, in my view, one that conveys an important message to biblical scholars. So why am I telling you all this? Because the guy had no idea what I was talking about. He never heard about this figure. He was unfamiliar with it, and he was certainly unfamiliar with the important messages it teaches us. The time has come to shatter the myth and explicitly address the most open secret which we all have known for a while now. Haredi education, that is Hasidic, education in its various yeshivas only focuses on one thing while creating ignorant students on every front. An important clarification, I am not referring like secular critics to the Haredi disregard for subjects such as math, science, English literature, etc. This is a different problem. The issue I have is with the fact that the vast majority of yeshivas only teach Talmud 
and related questions and answers. That's it. What about the Bible? I am not disparaging, heaven forbid, the importance of the Talmud. Yet for once, let's talk about the religious people who strictly adhere to the mitzvahs, that is, blessed deeds, yet are unfamiliar with the Bible. And this is not an anomaly. This is the norm. The only biblical verses familiar to yeshiva students are those quoted by Talmud sages, and that's that. The Bible is seen as a sort of inferior genre that is appropriate for young children or for women. End quote from Efret Shapira Rosenberg in Time to Face Haredi Secret in the February 10, 2010 edition of Ynet News. So Judaic people who reject the Talmudic traditions of men and regard as supreme law only the Old Testament word of God, they are known as Karaites, which means scripturalists. Karaism arose in reaction to the growing influence of the Talmud emanating from the Babylonian Talmudic academies in Pombita and from the Babylonian academy of Surah in present-day Iraq among Judaic people of the late 7th and early 8th century. The Judaic patriarch of Karaism was an 8th century rabbinic convert from Talmudism, Anan ben David. His book of precepts, Sefer HaMitzvot, undercut the authority of the Mishnah and Gemara. He famously stated, quote, search diligently in the scriptures and do not rely on my opinion, end quote. Due to their Bible-only devotion throughout their history, Karaite Jews have been persecuted and even killed by Talmudic zealots. The existence of the Karaites is largely unknown to the Vatican II Catholics and fundamentalist Protestants who imagine that Talmudic rabbis are faithful scripturalists. In order to answer the question about what makes Judaic people different, it is necessary that we refute a familiar defense against charges that the Babylonian Talmud is the basis of the laws of Orthodox Judaism. Apologists assert that the more blatantly horrible passages in the Babylonian Talmud do not constitute the law of Judaism or the halakha, but only commentary and debate. The truth, however, is very different. Halakha is comprised of the traditions found in the non-biblical sacred rabbinic texts, and those texts as a whole comprise the oral tradition, the oral law, the Torah Shibil Pech, what Josephus termed paradosis, that is, tradition. The oral traditions of the Pharisees is the foundation of the Talmud, as Jesus declared in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. Those traditions consist of extra-biblical superstitions and occultism, self-worship, racist hatred for non-Judaic people, and sheer nonsense. For example, Ketabot Tractate 60b to 61a reads, quote, If a woman copulates in a grain mill, she will have epileptic children. One who copulates on the ground will have children with long necks, end quote. In the Babylonian Talmud tractate Barakoth 55a, quote, A certain matron said to Rabbi Judah be Eli, Your face is red like that of the pig breeders and Goyim. The rabbi replied, On my faith, both are forbidden me, but there are 24 toilets between my house and the Beth Midrash, that is the house of study, and when I go there, I test myself in all of them. Apologists assert that the Talmud is only a record of debates. Malchukat, between Tanaim and Amorim, that is, the authors of the Babylonian 
Talmud known collectively as Chazal and who lived in the early centuries AD. And that by focusing on one portion of the controversy and upholding that passage as authoritative, the critic errs, for no legal sanction is given to either side of the debates in the Talmud. Well, this is demonstrably false. The Mishnah and subsequent rabbinic amplifications of it comprise the halakha, by which every believing Orthodox Judaic person is bound down to the most minute and intimate particulars of his or her daily life. Now, how Talmudic law is deduced and adjudicated is often an enigma to outsiders, but that it constitutes halakha is certain. The key point here is that the appearance of Talmudic indeterminacy does not preclude lawmaking by majority rabbinic consensus. I repeat, the key point is that the appearance of Talmudic indeterminacy does not preclude lawmaking by majority rabbinic consensus. And that's the process by which Talmudic halakha is determined in a given time and particular situation, both in terms of a decision on what constitutes the oral law of the elders as presented in the Mishnah, halakha lamosh mishinai, as well as the subsequent mitzvot derabanan, or rabbinical commandments found in the Gemara arising from the deductive process known as Maidat Shihathora Niresha Bachem. So, as a public relations ploy, many rabbis and Zionist leaders pretend otherwise, revealing the low opinion they have of the public, who they believe will swallow the line about the Talmud being a mere book of discourses and disputes, where no definitive teaching or authoritative lawmaking emerges. Well, the intent behind the deliberate sowing of this deception rests in the stratagem that by promoting the idea that the Talmud is a collection of debates and commentary without force of law, no indictment of it is possible, since another text can always be cited to contradict the offending one. However, the investigator who examines the historic discipline and practice of Orthodox Judaism can ascertain that a body of law codified in the Babylonian Talmud, exerts the most profound command over individual Judaics and governs their conduct. Now, what is disputed in the Talmud is often the Yudud Gimel Maidat, not the Halakha Limoshe Shinai. In presenting the Talmud to the public, this distinction is often not made. There are thousands of discourses and authoritative rabbinic texts about minutiae, such as which dishes can be washed on Shabbos, that is the Sabbath, and how they may be washed. And disagreements along those lines are not disagreements concerning the non-negotiable core Talmudic, Talmudic dogma that forms the halakha itself. Let's look at a dispute involving situation ethics. The ban on a Judaic man shaving his beard the hair-splitting dimensions of which would try the patience of most sane people. Rabbi Mamamides, also referred to as the Ram-Bam, that's B-A-M at the end there, not to be confused with the Ram-Ban, B-A-N. So Mam Moses Mamamides, the Ram-Bam, asserted that the rationale behind the ban on a Judaic man shaving his beard was the fact that the Goyim, as personified by the Chukos Ho'akim, customs of Catholic priests were clean-shaven. 
So to distinguish Goyim from Jews, therefore, Maimonides decreed that beards on Judaic males were obligatory. A point in this dissertation on this particular situation ethic was raised centuries later by the learned Posek, that is, determiner of Halakha, Rabbi Yosef Babad, in his Minchus Chanuk, a 19th century disquisition on the 13th century Sefer HaChanuk, itself a treatise on the Halakha codified by Maimonides in the 12th century. Rabbi Babad, in his ruling, following the clarification proffered by a 17th century Halakhist, Rabbi Halevi Segal, known as the Taz, T-A-Z, stating that there were extenuating circumstances and dispensations in connection with shaving and that when it becomes the general practice of Catholic priests to grow beards, Judaics would no longer be obliged not to shave. <laughs> now, to say that there are tens of thousands of other cases like the preceding would be a low estimate. Gedolim, Poskim, and other prodigiously erudite legal authorities of Orthodox Judaism clarify, modify, squabble, and split hairs over puerile trivia, such as whether a Judaic person may go to sleep while wearing shoes. And by the way, the answer to that is, is no, because it's a taste of death, according to Babylonian Talmud Tractate Yoma 78b. However, if the shoes are to be worn during a brief nap, it could be allowed, as specified in Lakotai Maharak Teflis Rav Naba, page 107, and in P.S. Saraka 37 and Shemira Shaguf Hahanash 115, footnote 2. Now, what happens if during his supposedly short nap, the Judaic person oversleeps? Well, the response to that requisite question is found in another dozen rabbinic sources. Then there are the pages of responsum concerning the permissibility of using colored toilet deodorizer on Shabbos. Quote, some postgim say it is considered dyeing, that is coloring, on Shabbos, which is forbidden. See Minchus Shlomo 2.14 and Rav Y.A. Silber Oz Nidbero 13.14. But Harav Israel Belsky maintains that if the deodorizer hangs from the rim of the toilet, then one may use it on Shabbos while if it is in the toilet itself, then it is considered coloring on Shabbos and it is not allowed. See, so for example, Moshe David Leibovitz, uh, published in 2010, page 89. Orthodox Talmudism consists of a universe of lawyers who bear the name rabbi. It is the domain of a theocratic bureaucracy so overgrown with laws, regulations, stipulations, and minutiae, as well as innumerable derivatives thereof, that it makes Charles Dickens' circumlocution office look like a libertarian utopia by comparison. Rules of derivation and procedure, the so-called Yud-Gimel Maidat, cannot compare with the oral law, which rabbinic dogma fantasizes that Yahweh gave to Moses. To the Am Haaretz, that is the ignorant bumpkins, it is insinuated that the Talmud is a debating society where everything is on the table. And this insinuation reveals contempt for the person, whether Judaic or non-Judaic, who dares to check into this matter. Using the record of Talmudic disputes on issues pertaining to situation ethics, to maintain that in the Talmud, the dogmas of rabbinic Judaism are merely batted back and forth in debates which do not have a significant function in forming halakha is almost too asinine to merit comment. 
Nonetheless, numerous persons troubled by candid documentation of the uncensored contents of the Talmud, when given a line of malarkey about it being a series of legally non-authoritative debates, too often swallow it, accepting the legend that rabbinic Judaism is the religion of the Old Testament prophets from which was born Western civilization's concepts of free will, freedom of conscience, and reasoning for oneself. In truth, the creed founded upon the Talmud is wholly alien in relation to that noble Western ethic. The Aguth Israel Orthodox Rabbinic Organization publishes Hamodia newspaper, in which we find the following representative statement in 19 Adar 5763 edition, that is February 21st, 2003, page 14, and we quote, From time immemorial, every God-fearing Jew subjected his personal and communal affairs to the guidance of his rav, that is rabbi, understanding the, following, the folly of following the dictates of his own heart or mind. End quote. The laws of the Mishnah and Gemara, as decided by the consensus of Chizal, through their supposed supernatural powers of Shityata Dishmaya, as stated in authoritative law codes derived from the Talmud Babli, such as the Mishnah Torah, the Shulchan Aruch, the Mishnah Berua, etc., are binding legal precedents. Opinions inconsistent with the Talmudic canon are void. Because the principle of situation ethics is central to Orthodox Judaism, halakha is applied and enforced according to stringencies and leniencies geared to a particular period of time. These distinctions date back to the Zugat pairs of the Tanatic era, and after that went on to influence during the early Renaissance the Church of Rome's philosophy of nominalism, which led eventually in the 16th century under Pope Leo X to nullify the church prohibitions against the renting of money, against usury. In the Middle Ages, the Rishonim era, Moses Maimonides devoted 12 years to extracting every decision and law from the Talmud of Babylon and arranging them into 14 systematic volumes. The work was completed in 1180 and was titled the Mishnah Torah. In the Mishnah Torah, Moses Maimonides taught in Avodat Chacham, chapter 10, quote, show no mercy to a non-Jew. He gave the following example. If we see a non-Jew being swept away or drowning in the river, we should not help him. If we see that his life is in danger, we should not save him, end quote. Now I wonder, is that not hate speech? Who is Moses Maimonides? Well, you'll find his name on many buildings throughout America and his image in a place of pride and esteem in the halls of Congress. And in general, the New York Times and other media report him as a benign, humanitarian, forward-looking, progressive master of the Bible, Moses Maimonides. In actuality, he is the leading halakhic authority for Ashkenazim Talmudists. Maimonides also taught that Christians should, under the proper circumstances, be killed. The proper circumstances are predicated on Rabbi Maimonides' situation ethics. 
When Talmudists are powerfully dominant over the Gentiles, then worshipers of Jesus can be executed. This is the foundation of Rabbi Maimonides' ruling on when Judaic doctors may refuse to treat non-Jewish patients, when Jews are sufficiently supreme in a nation that the refusal to treat will not result in repercussions and reprisals from Gentiles, who would be too cowed to retaliate in a nation where Talmudic supremacy was nearly total. It is instructive to observe that Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah, Sefer Hamada, ruled that Goyim, not currently at war with Israel, should neither be actively killed nor saved from death. Quote, it is prohibited both to save them from dying and to kill them. End quote, about how allies should be treated. Now, this is not a simple open and closed finding. Many more rabbinic texts have been generated setting out the situation ethics entailed by Maimonides' injunction. For example, Rabbi Nahamides in his Hidushai Ha-Rambam, Makat 9a, the key lawgiver, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, compiler of the highly credited legal volumes of the Shulchan Aruch, looks upon Maimonides' ruling not as a ban on the killing of Goyim, but a means for temporarily dispensing a Jew from the obligation to kill them while doing nothing to save them from death. With this in mind, we observe how halakha is applied and enforced subject to contingencies such as the ones that Maimonides stipulated, the legal, political, and social position of Judaic people in the nation in which they reside and among the goyim with whom they are dealing. Now, I'd like to parenthetically interject in here that most Judaic people, especially outside the Zionist colony, are not aware of these negative and hate speech teachings, and they would be horrified by them and would reject them if they were aware of them. This must be kept in mind. No more than every Italian is privy to the secrets of the Vatican. They cannot be judged in this way. And as we said at the top of the broadcast, the enemy here is an ideology, more specifically a theology, and never people. Let us continue then. In contemporary occupied Palestine, the Zionist colony, known as Israel, it's actually counterfeit Israel, most Christians, Muslims, and Arabs in general may be killed with relative impunity as the situation demands according to Talmudic halakha. There may be a temporary uproar in the Western world and protest, but historically these protests have subsided with no lasting detrimental effect on the Israeli state. For example, in the summer of 1982, the city of Beirut, Lebanon was carpet bombed on the orders of Ariel Sharon, who was a commander at that time, culminating in the terror bombing of apartment blocks hospitals and schools in August of 1982, a virtual uh, firebombing of that area perpetrated by Sharon and the Israeli military. Tens of thousands of Lebanese were burned alive, men, women, and children, civilians. Have you heard of it? Has it even been remembered? No. The temporary uproar was heard in 1982 and 1983, but historically it subsides and there's no lasting detrimental effect on the Israeli state. The memory dissolves. Now, in times past, in nations where Christian or Muslim governments were vigilant concerning crimes against 
non-Judaic persons, the field of action against Christians and Muslims, as promulgated by lawgiver Rabbi Moses Mamamides in his Mishnah Torah, was restricted by the circumstances. So Mamamides himself served for a time as the personal physician to the family of the Sultan of Egypt, ostensibly dispensing with the Talmudic dictum of showing no mercy to Goyim. The situation demanded, however, that the Talmudic ethic be suspended for the time being for a more paramount objective, to allow Mamamides to gain influence with the nation-state's ruling family. During the administration of President Barack Obama, the Wall Street Journal reported that Israeli physicians and hospitals were giving medical treatment to the Nusra Front's injured Al-Qaeda fighters so as to hasten their return to the Syrian battlefield where they were waging war against the government of Bashar al-Assad. And you can find that article. It's titled, Al-Qaeda, a Lesser Evil? In the Wall Street Journal online, March 12, 2015, and the Wall Street Journal in its print edition, March 13, 2015, page A6. This is another instance of how rabbinic injunctions can be temporarily suspended under certain circumstances in line with Orthodox Talmudism's situation ethics. Hence, there is certainly debate within the rabbinate over how, when, and to what degree to apply the Talmudically derived halakha. To extrapolate from the situation wherein questions of timing and tactical application arise within the rabbinate to a nullification of the existence and compelling force of law which the Talmudic Mishnah and Gemara exert is without foundation. For example, there is no authentic debate about Gentiles having lesser souls or, in the case of the Chabad Lubavitch theology, no souls whatsoever. The Goyim are nefesh deficient. That's the fixed, sacred law of Orthodox Judaism. It's not even debatable. That's why all discussion of it is suppressed. It can't be debated, so therefore any discussion must be suppressed lest the truth be gleaned. How the law that Goyim are less than fully human is applied is indeed subject to discussion and contestation in the Mishnah Torah, the Kesef Mishnah, and hundreds of cognate legal texts derived from the Talmud. But the halakha comprising the Talmud of Babylon itself is incontestable. When putative defenders of the Talmud engage in absurdity and pointed debates about how Talmudic halakha is to be interpreted as evidence that the source of the Torah Shibil Pech, the Talmudic texts themselves, comprise only an admired collection of debates and discussions, well, they're playing a prank on the goyish dupes. In addition to the Mishnah and Gemara of the Talmud Bavli, the laws of Rabbinic Judaism are also derived from successor legal texts emanating from the Talmud. And these include, but are not limited to, the Mishnah Torah, the Shulchan Aruch, the Mishnah Beruah, the Shulchan Haruch Harav, the Kitzer Shulchan Haruch, the Igros Mosh, and many dozens of additional post-Talmudic sacred volumes having the force of law in Ashkenazic Orthodox Judaism. Where is the word of God, you ask, amid the miasma of anthropocentric laws which constitute these rabbinic traditions? It's a good question, and one that sola scriptura Protestants who excoriate Catholicism over its belief in a Bible plus tradition theology have generally either conspicuously ignored or unconscionably neglected. 
Now, one of the principles of Talmudic theology, of Talmudic hate speech, is the inherent moral turpitude of the Gentiles. We intend to demonstrate that rabbinic law imputes an inherent moral turpitude to non-Jews and classes them as innately malevolent. The Gentiles are grouped together with categories of criminals and transgressors who cannot act as witnesses in a Bayes Din, that is a rabbinic court. That law is in the Shulchan Haruk, Hoshan Mishpat 34. Goyim are detested and feared in part because it is taught that they are congenitally predisposed to murder. Quote, a Jew should not be alone with a Goy because the Goy is suspect to commit homicide. That's the Ketzer Shulchan Aruch, 168, verse 17. In the laws governing kashrut, that is, kosher food and drink, victuals may not be consumed by a Judaic if their preparation was entirely by a Gentile. A Gentile handling Judaic food must be supervised by a frum, F-R-U-M, by a frum, that is, Talmud observant Judaic, because a goy cannot be trusted not to render the food or drink impure or poisonous. Even this supervised food preparation may not be permissible in situations where a stringency, known as the rabbinic prohibition of bishul akum, is enforced. And that's in Pinchai Teshuva Y.D. 113 verse 1 and Aruch HaShulchan 113 verse 50, Y.D. 113.16 and Chokmas Adam 66 verse 11. Under certain circumstances, wine that has even been touched by a non-Judaic, quote, has been defiled and is unfit for use by Jews, end quote, from the Babylonian Talmud of Vodazara 72b. When the opportunity to save a Judaic human life, that is, pikua nefesh, conflicts with the observance of the Sabbath, saving the Judaic life takes precedence over the Sabbath. Rabbinic legal authorities also distinguish between the obligation to save a Judaic life on the Sabbath and the life of a Gentile. Israel Meir Kagan, who lived from 1838 to 1933, is the Halakhic authority known as the Chafetz Chaim. He condemned the behavior of any Judaic physician who did not discriminate between Jews and non-Jews. Concerning Judaic physicians, Rabbi Kagan wrote in the Mishnah Beruah, OH330, and we quote, to treat a non-Jew, there is no authority for them to do so, end quote. Now, the halachic status of Rabbi Kagan's Mishnah Barua was assessed by Simcha Fishbane in his book, The Encyclopedia of Judaism, or at least his essay there, as follows, quote, his greatest work, which remains the strongest influence on Orthodox practice today and whose authority is considered final, is the Mishnah Barua, 1884 to 1907 in six volumes, end quote. It is a minhag, a custom without the force of law, to refer to goyim using racial slurs. So non-Judaic men are termed a male abomination, that is a shagetz, the plural is shaktsim. With regard to non-Judaic women, the racist term of derision is shiksa, denoting a female abomination. And now I regret to say we enter the domain of Talmudic hate speech. We have reviewed some of it, but this is really hardcore and difficult to take and hard to believe. The Babylonian Talmud states, quote, only Jews are human, non-Jews are not human. I could give you a number of sources for that. Uh, let's restrict ourselves to three. Baba Metzviah 114b from the Talmud Bavli, 
also Karatoth 6b and 58a. One of the earliest laws distinguishing between Judaics and Goyim is found in the Babylonian Talmud and Sanhedrin 57a, quote, regarding bloodshed, the following distinction applies. If a non-Jew is killed, another non-Jew, or a non-Jew killed a Jew, the killer is liable for execution. Let me repeat that. Regarding bloodshed, the following distinction applies. If a non-Jew killed another non-Jew, or a non-Jew killed a Jew, the killer is liable for execution. If a Jew killed a non-Jew, he is exempt from punishment. Regarding a Jew stealing from a non-Jew, the act is permitted. Sanhedrin 57a. These are awful teachings in the book of hate known as the Babylonian Talmud. And believe me when I say that the majority of Judaic people would reject these. It's the hard core that cling to them and put them into action in the Zionist colony. It is commanded in the Talmud's Kedushin 66c, quote, the best of the Gentiles kill him. The best of snakes smash its skull. The best of women is filled with witchcraft. And that's from the uncensored version of this text, which appears in Tractate Sophirum, New York, M. Heiger, 1937, page 282. The Talmud decrees in Sanhedrin 81b to 82a, quote, all Gentile women without exception are Nida, Shifka, Goya, and Zona. And I will translate that. All Gentile women, without exception, are menstrual filth, slaves, heathens, and prostitutes, end quote. What a horrible, horrible imprecation against non-Judaic people and the kinds of attitudes that are then ingrained from youth against those people with this type of hate speech. You're listening to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History. The Babylonian Talmud also rules that black people are cursed, quote, the sages taught three violated that directive and engaged in intercourse while on the ark of Noah, and all of them were punished for doing so. They are the dog and the raven and Ham, son of Noah. The dog was punished in that it is bound. The raven was punished in that it spits and Ham was afflicted in that his skin turned black and quote from Sanhedrin 108b from the Babylonian Talmud. Folks, the preceding Talmudic legal texts has directly contributed to the suffering and misery of black Africans enslaved on the basis that they were accursed descendants of Ham and their enslavement foredained by God. Nowhere is this bigoted lie found in the Bible. It is entirely the invention of the Talmudic and Midrashic theology of men. Moreover, a declaration by that supreme arbiter of rabbinic law in the Ashkenazic world, with whom we have already introduced you, Rabbi Moses Mamamides, with all his buildings named after him here in the United States, and with his image in pride of place in the U.S. Congress, created a justification for white slaveholders and slave traders, both Judaic and, I'm sorry to say, Christian, to enslave black people for life and treat them as chattel, which is another name for cattle. Mamamides performed this service for the slave trade in his seminal medieval text, The Guide of the Perplexed, which is celebrated throughout the Western world. In The Guide of the Perplexed, this 
supposedly illustrious rabbi taught that black people are, quote, irrational animals who are situated midway between the ape and the human, end quote. Now, if you doubt what I'm saying, you think I've taken it out of context or it's been falsified, go to the uncensored edition of The Guide of the Perplexed, published by the University of Chicago Press, translated by Shlomo Pines, volume two, page 618. It was published in 1963. The leading disciple of Maimonides in American 20th century politics and statecraft just so happened to be the godfather of the neocons in America, Leo Strauss, professor of political science at the University of Chicago. The neocon conservatives who were influenced by him were a significant force in George W. Bush's decision to needlessly invade and make war upon the nation of Iraq, for which there were no war crimes trials bringing Bush into the docket. President Bush filled many key command and advisory positions with neocons, including Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Elliot Abrams, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, Bill Kristol, Douglas Fife, John Bolton, and Ari Fleischer. The founding sacred book of the theologically influential and, in the United States, politically powerful Orthodox Chabad Lubavitch Judaism is the Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A, which was written by Chabad's founder, Rabbi Schnur Zalman of Laiedi. This foundational Chabad text decrees, and we quote, Gentile souls are of a completely different and inferior order. They are totally evil, with no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Their material abundance derives from supernal refuse. Indeed, they themselves derive from refuse, which is why they are more numerous than the Jews. And quote from Chabad, the Hasidim of Shnur Zalman of Laedi, pages 108 to 109. Apparently, Rabbi Zalman never read or credited Genesis 22:17, in which God informs Abraham that his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Schnur Zalman, again, quote, The souls of the Goyim emanate from the unclean kelepot, that is, husks, which contain no good whatsoever. End quote from the book Opening the Tanya, page 43. The Kabbalah in the volume Book of Splendor, that is, the Zohar, defines Kelepot as husks of evil, waste matter, bad blood, dross, dregs, the root of evil. You can find that in Gershom Sholem's textbook Kabbalah, pages 125, 139, and 156 to 157. Israeli settler rabbis, such as the late Moshe Levinger, and Meir Kahana took Rabbi Zalman's dogma to heart and encouraged terrorism against Palestinian civilians. Levinger shot to death an unarmed Palestinian storekeeper and served less than a year in an Israeli jail for that murder. Today, tens of thousands of rabbis from Brooklyn to Moscow and Jerusalem preach and teach the soul-searing dehumanization of Gentiles promulgated by the revered founder of Chabad Lubavitch. Palestinians are oppressed, robbed, beaten, and killed based upon the theological determination that they, like the rest of the Gentiles in general, are not human, indeed garbage, indeed supernal refuse. In Orthodox Talmudism, Gentiles are not to be trusted. Quote, 
A Gentile's word is totally discounted regarding ritual prohibitions. In a situation where a Gentile's word is not relied upon, his conversion to Judaism will not influence our acceptance of his testimony. End quote from Rabbi Ezra Basri, Chief Justice, District Court, Jerusalem, in his article, The Testimony of a Gentile Regarding Ritual Matters, in the book Ethics of Business, Finance, and Charity, Volume 2, Chapter 13. In Orthodox Talmudism, there is no obligation to be fair to Gentiles. Quote, the laws of fairness mentioned above only apply between two Jewish neighbors. Gentiles do not necessarily respect these principles, and hence there is no obligation to show them such consideration in return. And quote again from Rabbi Ezra Basri, Chief Justice, Volume 4, Chapter 2. You're listening to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, online at revisionisthistory.org. In 2014, Rabbi Mordecai Kedar, a professor at the elite Israeli Bar Ilan University, stated that the only action that can successfully deter armed resistance by Arabs is to rape their sisters or their mothers. Professor Kedar's words were not an aberration or a misinterpretation. They were consistent with the Halakha though it will be claimed by the usual public relations hacks that the Bar-Ilan University professor's monstrous rape deterrent observation is condemned by the Jewish tradition, citing, for example, Kedushin 22, there are rabbinic escape clauses which justify rape. First, the rape target must be classified as a zona, that is, a prostitute, or a nokri, that is, a hostile alien. The supreme Ashkenazic halakhic authority, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, rules that a Judaic soldier may rape this type of female, Yefes Toar, as a prisoner of war, when he is not actively fighting a battle. And that's from Maimonides Hilchos Melachim, chapter 8, verse 3. A text in the Mirat Theology Journal of Yeshiviat Chavai Torah Rabbinic School gives permission to Judaic soldiers to rape a female Goy battle captive one time. Quote, it is the consensus of many halakhic decisors, judges of rabbinic law, that the Yefa Toar, female Goy battle captive or prisoner of war, can be subject to involuntary intercourse, though only once, after which she must undergo a specific regimen described in the Torah, that is the Torah Shibil Pech, the Mishnah and the Gemara, not the Torah of the Old Testament, that she must undergo a specific regimen described in the Torah of conversion and marriage before her captor is permitted further sexual relations with her. And that's the source for that is Dove S. Zakheim in the journal Merat, volume six, number one, published in 2006, page five. Mr. Zakheim was under secretary of defense in the administration of George W. Bush in the years 2001 and 2004. Where is the Me Too movement when it comes to these texts? this hate speech, all Talmudically derived. Advocates of raping non-Jews can be found at the highest levels of the Israeli ruling class. Here is the permission to commit rape given by Eyal Karim, who was the chief rabbi of the Israeli army. Quote, the wars of Israel are mitzvah, that is divinely blessed, wars, in which they differ from the rest of the wars the nations, that is the goyim, wage among themselves. Since essentially a war is not an individual matter, but rather nations wage war as a whole, there are cases in which the personality of the individual is erased for the benefit of the whole, and vice versa. 
Sometimes you risk a large unit for the saving of an individual when it is essential for purposes of morale. One of the important and critical values during war is maintaining the army's fighting ability. And the chief rabbi of the Israeli army continues, quote, As in war, the prohibition against risking your life is broken for the benefit of others. So are the prohibitions against immorality and of kashrut, that is kosher. Wine touched by Gentiles, consumption of which is prohibited in peacetime, is allowed at war to maintain the good spirit of the warriors. Consumption of prohibited foods is permitted during war, and some say even when kosher food is available, to maintain the fitness of the warriors, even though they are prohibited during peacetime. Just so, war removes some of the prohibitions on sexual relations, gilu ariat, and even though fraternizing with a Gentile woman is a very serious matter, it was permitted during wartime under the specific terms out of understanding for the hardship endured by the warriors. And since the success of the war as a whole is our goal, the Torah permitted the individual to satisfy the evil urge, Yetzer Chara, under the conditions mentioned for the purpose of the success of the whole. And of course, the euphemism fraternizing with a Gentile woman, that means rape. Rabbi Karim's words, the one-time chief rabbi of the Israeli military, would be despicable even if he were not the chief spiritual teacher and counselor of the Israeli army, which holds in its iron fist the nearly helpless captive population of Palestine. And now we enter some of the darkest precincts of the Talmudic creed. Precincts for which you have never received even an inkling. Precincts which the media will not approach under any circumstances. Weaponizing the Babylonian Talmud's racism and bigotry toward non-Jews is a non-subject for academia and media. Racist and hateful Talmudic doctrine about Gentiles has been weaponized by the halakhic injunctions of rabbis in the so-called Israeli state and in the United States, and the expulsion, subjugation, and mass murder of Palestinians and the Israeli slaughter of Arabs in Lebanon can only be fully comprehended within the context of the anti-Gentile halakha derived from the Talmud which was formerly concealed, obscured, and denied, and which is increasingly being published in the Hebrew language press and in the case of the Steinsaltz Talmud in English. Let's begin with Rabbi Sadia Grama. He is one of the intellectual stars of the Beth Medrash Govah, otherwise known as the Lakewood Yeshiva, an internationally renowned center for Talmud study located in New Jersey. In 2003, Grama published the book Ramut Israel Ufarshat Hagalat, and that is Jewish Superiority and the Question of Exile. That's its actual title. In it, he declaimed as follows. The Jew, by his source and in his essence, is entirely good. The Gentile, by his source and in his very essence, is completely evil. This is not simply a matter of religious distinction, 
but rather of two different species. Jewish success in the world is completely contingent upon the failure of other peoples. Jews experience good fortune only when Gentiles experience catastrophe. The difference between Jews and Gentiles is not historical or cultural, but rather genetic and unalterable. End quote. Rabbi Grandma further stated that the Torah mandates that Jews, while in exile, should employ such means as, quote, deception, duplicity, and bribery in their dealing with Gentiles. You're listening to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, revisionisthistory.org. Very typically, whenever these facts from the documentary record are presented, the defense is, is that these are extremist statements by rabbinic sources that are virtually outlawed in the religion of Orthodox Judaism. They are marginalized, they're out on the fringes. That's always the story. Well, let's see if it's true. This book, Ramamut Israel Ufarshat Hagalat, was endorsed by eminent rabbinic authorities, including the distinguished Rabbi Era Malkiel Kotler, the Rosh Yeshiva, that is, the dean of the seminary at Lakewood. He lauded Grama for his teaching on, quote, the subjects of exile, the election of Israel, and her exaltation above and superiority to all other nations, all in accordance with the viewpoint of the Torah, based on the solid instruction he has received from his teachers, end quote. A year after Grama's supremacist volume was published, the United States Congress awarded the Lakewood Yeshiva a federal grant of $500,000. But it gets worse. There are murder manuals. One is titled Baruch Hagever, and the other Torat Hamlek. Quote, Jewish life has infinite value. There is something infinitely more holy and unique about Jewish life than non-Jewish life. End quote. Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsberg, born in 1944 in St. Louis, Missouri, is considered one of Chabad Lubavitch's leading experts on the Kabbalah. He is a celebrated educator and influencer in the USA and the Israeli state. Like Rabbi Grama, Ginsberg also teaches the dogma that Jews possess a genetically based superiority over non-Jews. Quote, if you have two people drowning, a Jew and a non-Jew, the Torah says you save the Jewish life first, Rabbi Ginsburg asserts. He also teaches, quote, if every single cell in a Jewish body entails divinity, is a part of God, then every strand of DNA is a part of God. Therefore, something is special about Jewish DNA, end quote. Rabbi Ginsburg stated further, quote, if a Jew needs a liver, can you take the liver of an innocent non-Jew passing by to save him? The Torah would probably permit that. Jewish life has infinite value. There is something infinitely more holy and unique about Jewish life than non-Jewish life. End quote. Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsberg of the Chabad Lubavitch is the author of the text Baruch Hagever a book praising the example of mass murderer Baruch Goldstein, 
who massacred 40 Palestinians as they prayed in a mosque in Hebron on Purim, February 1994. In Baruch HaGever, the rabbi termed the slaughter, quote, an act of bravery whose source was divine grace, end quote. Baruch HaGever is a summary provided by one of Ginsburg's students of a class Ginsburg taught in 1994 during which he identified positive aspects of Baruch Goldstein's massacre of Muslim worshippers. You're listening to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History online at revisionisthistory.org. As, quote, the sanctification of the name of God, the life of Israel is worth more than the life of the Goy, and even if the Goy does not intend to hurt Israel, it is permitted to hurt him in order to save Israel. Legally, Ginsburg asserts, if a Jew kills a non-Jew, he's not called a murderer. He didn't transgress the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. This applies only to Jews killing Jews. End quote from Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg. This is a nearly verbatim reference to the Talmud in Sanhedrin 57a. Ginsburg's teachings have incited a new generation of Israeli murderers who rely upon his Talmudic theology to justify the killing of Palestinian civilians. This homicidal rabbinic theology is imparted in a book co-authored in 2009 by the Rosh Yeshiva, that is, Dean, of Ginsburg's seminary, Ad Yosef Chai, in the West Bank settlement of Yitzar, where the Israeli settlers have planted themselves illegally on Palestinian territory. This book is titled Torat HaMelech, Be'yur Halakha Bien Malchut Ul-Mohat, The King's Torah, Halakhic Clarifications Regarding Matters of Kingdom and Wars. The title has been abbreviated as Torah HaMelech. It was written by the Rosh Yeshiva, as noted, Rabbi Yitzhak Shapira, in collaboration with Rabbi Yosef Elitzer. It explicitly claims that the life of a Jew is worth more than the life of a non-Jew and permits the killing of innocent non-Jews, including children. One section of the volume teaches that it is permitted to kill non-Jewish infants on the enemy side during warfare, quote, if there is a good chance they will grow up to be like their evil parents. End quote. Other reasons the rabbis furnish for the permission to kill non-Judaic children include if they, quote, block the rescue of Jews. Little children are often situated in this way. It is permitted to kill them because their very presence facilitates the killing of Jews. End quote from page 215. Also on, two pa- on page 215, we read, It is also permitted to kill the children of the leader of the enemy in order to put pressure on him. End quote. In another instance, Rabbis Shapira and Elitzer write, quote, Every citizen of our kingdom who opposes us and who encourages our enemy's fighters or expresses satisfaction with their deeds is considered an assailant and may be killed. End quote. On page 185, the rabbinic authors state that whoever uses freedom of speech to weaken the Jews is considered to be a rodef, that is, a pursuer, as we noted earlier, and that person can be killed. 
They based this on the ruling by the Maharal of Prague, Rabbi Judah Lowe, who determined that whoever causes Jews to be reluctant to kill, and his exact words were faint-hearted while at war, deserves death. See the Gur Areya on Parashat Mathat. In chapter 4 of Torah Hamalech, Rabbi Shapira and Elitzer state that because the life of the Jew is superior to that of the non-Jew, quote, there is a consensus among the halakhic sources that it is permitted to kill non-Jews to save the lives of Jews. It is permitted as well in cases in which we exploit the presence of innocent young children and harm them in order to harm their parents. End quote from page 199. These are very difficult words to repeat in this broadcast, but the world needs to know because these words lead to real harm, real world harm in places like Gaza, the West Bank, Jerusalem, and has been showed from history, Beirut, Lebanon, and other places in Lebanon. The rabbis further state, quote, there is a svara, that is a compelling reason founded on intuition, for hurting young non-Jewish children if it is clear that they will grow up to harm us, and in such cases we should aim our destruction specifically towards them. Young children will benefit from this killing since they would have grown up in an unrepaired way, and I'll translate those words, betzura lo menuchech, that would require their killing anyway. Therefore, it would be better to kill them now. That's from pages 205 to 207, end quote. Can you imagine the killing of children will be to their benefit since they would have grown up in an unrepaired way that would have required their killing anyway? This is the logic of the madhouse, of psychopathic killers. The final chapter of this rabbinic law book urges the employment of merciless vengeance against the goyim. That's pages 217 to 224. This book, Torah Hamlech, which has received almost no publicity in the United States media, concludes with an indirect call for vigilante killings of Palestinians, many of which have occurred since the book appeared to little publicity in the West, such as, for example, the burning to death in 2015 of a Palestinian baby, Ali Dawabish, and his mother and father by a youthful Talmudist. Two dozen Orthodox rabbis signed an open letter calling on the government to free the youthful Talmudic arsonist, the adult son of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Yair Netanyahu, raised money for the child killer's legal costs. Now, the authors of the book, Rabbi Shapira and Rabbi Elitzer, declare that individual Jews can make the decision to kill Goyim extrajudicially, quote, one does not need a decision by the nation to permit the spilling of blood. Sometimes one must commit ruthless acts that are designed to create the correct element of fear. End quote from Torah Hamalech. In addition to Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg, prominent rabbis Dov Lior and Yaakov Yosef gave Torah Hamalech their blessing. This book has been circulated among the Israeli military and police forces and high elements in the government. Rabbi Ishe Berg also wrote in approval of Rabbi Shapira and Elitzer's teaching, quote, The Jewish soul is, in fact, 
the thrusting of the world into the absolute, into an entity with a validity of existence which cannot be compared with the fragile reality which we see before our eyes. This perception lies behind the ruling that the life of a Jew and the fulfillment of the commandments are superior to the life of a non-Jew in any situation. That's from his text, Mana Laderach HaMelech. In 1989, a mob of Zionists, led by Rabbi Ginsburg, rampaged through a village in the West Bank region of Palestine, engaging in arson and murdering a 13-year-old Palestinian girl. A Talmud student was arrested and put on trial in an Israeli court. Ginsburg spoke for the defense, pointing out the lower value of the life of the Palestinian child, and we quote, the people of Israel must rise and declare in public that a Jew and Goy are not, God forbid, the same. Any trial that assumes that Jews and Goyim are equal is a travesty of justice. End quote. In March 1996, Rabbi Ginsburg delivered a Purim lecture claiming to quote Chabad Lubavitch Grand Rabbi Menachem Schneerson on the subject of quote the mitzvahs of war for the sake of revenge and war for the sake of conquering the land of Israel, end quote. According to Rabbi Ginsburg, Grand Rabbi Menachem Schneerson taught that quote war for the sake of revenge was a much higher mitzvah, that is, blessed act, end quote. Ginsburg asserts that criticism of him is equivalent to criticism of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that is Schneerson, and of the Torah Shebil Pech itself, that is the oral Torah, oral law. C.F., for example, Lawrence Kohler, quote, the title is Hero or Racist, Are Jewish Lives Really More Valuable Than Non-Jewish Ones? That appeared in the Jewish Week publication, April 26, 1996, pages 12 and 31. Yitzhak Kinsberg was a 2019 recipient of an award from the Israeli Ministry of Education honoring him for his Torah wisdom. According to Judaic scholars Norton Mezvinsky and Israel Shahak in their book Jewish Fundamentalism in Israel, one of the basic tenets of the Lurianic Kabbalah is the absolute superiority of the Jewish soul and body over the non-Jewish soul and body. According to the Lurianic Kabbalah, the world was created solely for the sake of Jews. The existence of non-Jews was subsidiary. End quote. The largest funeral for any Israeli dignitary in the history of the Israeli state was conducted in honor of the memory and teachings of an advocate of the genocide of Palestinians. Rabbi Ovedia Yosef in Jerusalem in October 2013. The funeral was for him. It was attended by an estimated 700,000 to 800,000 Israeli mourners. And the New York Times described Rabbi Yosef as, quote, the spiritual leader of the ultra-Orthodox Shas party, that's S-H-A-S. And quote. The Associated Press reported, quote, Rabbi Ovedia Yosef, the religious scholar and spiritual leader of Israel's Sephardic Jews, who transformed his downtrodden community of immigrants from North Africa and Arab nations and their descendants into a powerful force in Israeli politics, died on Monday. Yosef was often called the outstanding Sephardic rabbinical authority of the century. End quote. 
Prime Minister Netanyahu declared that Rabbi Yosef was, quote, one of the great halachic authorities of our generation. Rav Ovedia was a giant in Torah and halakha. He worked hard to glorify the heritage of Israel, end quote. Well, these are the teachings of this great man, this saintly rabbi who received the largest funeral in the history of the Israeli state, Rabbi Ovedia Yosef, the object of veneration by the New York Times and the Associated Press. He advocated the extermination of Arabs, quote, May the holy name visit retribution on the Arab heads and cause their seed to be lost and annihilate them. It is forbidden to have pity on them. We must give them missiles with relish, annihilate them, evil ones, damnable ones. End quote from Rabbi Ovedia Yosef's 2001 Passover sermon. And the quote is reprinted in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper of April 12, 2001. He went on to liken Gentiles to donkeys who exist only to serve the Judaic people. Quote, Goyim were born only to serve us. Without that, they have no place in the world, only to serve the people of Israel. With Gentiles, it will be like any person. They need to die. But God will give them longevity. Why? Imagine that one's donkey would die. They'd lose their money. This is his servant. That's why he gets a long life, to work well for this Jew. Why are Gentiles needed? They will work. They will plow. They will reap. We will sit like an effendi and eat. That is why Gentiles were created. And quote from the Jerusalem Post newspaper of October 18, 2010. Concerning this identification of Goyim with donkeys, Yosef was repeating the teaching of the Babylonian Talmud in the uh, tractate Berachah 58a as well as Kedushin 68b. The Talmudic theology that produced Ovedia Yosef also produced the prominent Israeli rabbi Bensi Gopstein, who advocates the burning of Christian churches on Israeli territory. For example, see the Telegraph newspaper of Great Britain of August 6, 2015. Gopstein has declared that Christian missionary work must not be given a foothold. Let's throw the vampires out of our land before they drink our blood again. And quote from the Forward Judaic newspaper of New York, December 24, 2015. Mr. Gopstein is a leader in Lahava, Laminat, Hitubalat Baratz HaChodesh, that is, translated, the prevention of assimilation in the Holy Land, which attacks Palestinians who date or court or marry Judaic women. In 2010, multiple rabbitsons, that's a title for wives of rabbis, multiple rabbitsons acting on behalf of this Lahava organization issued an open letter urging Israeli women not to associate with non-Jews. It advised, quote, don't date non-Jews, don't work at places that non-Jews frequent, and don't do national service with non-Jews, end quote. The letter implied that if the women did so, they would be cut off from their, quote, holy race. And you can find that in the article titled, Rabbi's Wives Urge Israeli Women Stay Away from Arab Men, from the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, December 28, 2010, also the Israeli newspaper Jerusalem Post, December 28, 2010. The leading Israeli settler, Rabbi Shlomo Avener, declared that the devastating fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in April 2019 was God's curse, 
divine retribution for medieval Catholics putting the Babylonian Talmud on trial. And we quote, Abner said it was a result of the Paris trial in which Jewish sages in France of that generation were forced into confrontation with the Christian sages. The result was the burning of the Talmud. The Talmud books were brought to the Notre Dame Square in 20 wagons and were burned there, meaning 1,200 Talmud books. Avener, now the rabbi of the West Bank settlement Beit El, said it is a mitzvah, a deed done from religious duty, to set fire to churches in Israel. And quote from the Haaretz newspaper, April 17, 2019. Rabbi Shlomo Avener states, and we quote, The great Christian church in Paris is on fire. Should we feel sorry for that, or should we rejoice, as it, as it is idolatry, which it is a mitzvah to burn? Several immensely important rabbinic rulers, most prominent among them Mamamides, ruled that churches are places of idolatry and ought to be destroyed. The rulings are very clear. And quote from Rabbi Shlomo Avner, a leading Israeli settler rabbi. Hasbara, that is, Israeli propaganda, is so intense and widely repeated in the Western media that it has managed to convince the non-Talmudic world that these Orthodox rabbis and their declarations are an exception, a marginal extremist phenomenon condemned by the mainstream. Well, it is true that sophisticated public relations experts can be depended upon to parade a long line of Orthodox rabbis who will offer lip service denunciation of these openly hateful Talmudic texts that we have quoted to you. But mark well, these protests are mainly for public consumption, targeted at naive Gentiles, the racism and bigotry toward Palestinians, Christians, and Goyim in general is a direct transmission from the Babylonian Talmud and the later rabbinic legal texts that are the heirs of its didactic hermeneutic. The Talmudic dictum to show no mercy to a non-Jew is taught at yeshivas in Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank where settler institutes of higher education in places such as Perach Tikva turn out recruits for service in elite combat units of the Israeli Army and Air Force. Regiments and squadrons composed of these Talmudic Zionist troops are among the most brutal in the Israeli military. Now, this podcast is fairly new, Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History. That's what you're listening to. Our website is revisionisthistory.org. I thought to myself, if I put this podcast out, this particular one, today, I may be endangering the distribution of Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History podcast throughout the world. We are now heard in more than 50 countries. We're enjoying the free speech that America allows. We're trying to save innocent lives. We're trying to document hate speech. But we are at risk, also physically, as you know, from the quotes we gave, because reporters such as this reporter, who bring forth these facts, are at risk of harm or even death, and certainly in terms of cancel culture, highly at risk, because the propaganda level is so high and intense that people like Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Judaic who has a national podcast that is circulated throughout America, they never broach any of these subjects. 
They bring up Orthodox Judaism and its Talmud as being the most benign and benevolent of texts imaginable with love for all. Therefore, we are in very dangerous territory here, but we believe that the educational value of this information, not only for Palestinians and Christians and Lebanese, but for all people, especially beloved Judaic people who may be in thrall to these horrors. Their liberation is what Christ came first for and foremost in the gospel. I come nowhere except among the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus Christ said. That was early in his ministry, and later he broadened it out in the Great Commission to all of the world. So Judaic people are dear to his heart. And as part of that, we seek their conversion. We seek their liberation. We seek their enlightenment from these Talmudic horrors, this Talmudic hate speech, which is institutionalized not only in the Israeli state, but in the Israeli media. We told you about Rabbi Ovedia Yosef and his horrible genocidal preachments and dogma. And yet, the highly respected New York Times and the Associated Press, legacy media that are considered part of the documentary record, omitted all of the information that we presented to you today. What does that do for the world? What does that do for humanity who are at the mercy of the Israeli military today in Palestine? Once again, our website is revisionisthistory.org. I am the author of a 1,100-page textbook, Judaism Discovered. You can obtain it at revisionisthistory.org. There is also a shorter condensation available of that book, printed as a separate paperback for those who don't have the time to read through the 1,100 pages. I encourage you to go to our website, revisionisthistory.org. Your donations are also greatly appreciated for our truth mission. All right, let's address an objection. What, again, apologists will say in regard to the horrifying documentation that we have furnished for you today. They will say that these problematic Talmudic citations are taken out of context. Well, context is everything for the defenders of the Talmudic rabbinic theology. Fair enough. But by context, they do not mean taking into account the surrounding text, but rather submitting to Judaism's own narrative about itself, which includes how it chooses to present the malevolent contents of the Babylonian Talmud to non-Judaic audiences. In their eyes, misuse of knowledge of rabbinic texts is defined as employing those texts for, quote, polemical purposes. In their view, no polemic contra-Talmudic Judaism is permissible, however authentically contextual it may be. I can't emphasize that enough. In considering the low value which the Talmudic religious system places on nefesh deficient, nefesh is spelled N-E-F-E-S-H, nefesh deficient, that is to say lesser-souled non-Jews, Gentiles who do not have a soul like Judaic people do, we have been unable to find any substantial body of exculpatory halakhic texts that radically contradict this racist, supremacist, and rabbinic law. This is a tragedy, of course, 
but the facts speak for themselves, and no amount of pressure or intimidation alters this truth or causes us to withdraw that which advances human knowledge and serves to prevent racism, hatred, and violence. We are aware that Jew-haters throughout history have attempted to exploit the lamentable facts about the rabbinic tradition as a means of engaging in the reverse of what the Talmudic rabbis do to Goyim, oppress and subjugate them. The perverse irony of Jew hatred rests in the fact that it is often a mirror image of Goyim hatred. There is nothing in the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles which directs or condones hatred of Jews. Jesus taught, quote, salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Judeans. He initially came only unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. And his statement, salvation is of the Judeans, or Jews if you prefer, is from John chapter 4, verse 22. All of Jesus' earliest followers, as well as his blessed mother, were Jews. When so-called Christians crusade to oppress or violently suppress Jews, they are doing so without a biblical foundation, contrary to the teachings of the Moshiach of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. Whereas hatred, violence, and bigotry are in accord with the holiest texts of Talmudism, the Mishnah, Gemara, Mishnah Torah, Shulchan Haruk, Mishnah Beruah, to which the Old Testament is subordinated. Until the founding of the Israeli state, violence toward Goyim was less widespread, and the idea of building a Judaic military force or to propose a mission of conquest or capture of land designated as Israel was abhorrent to Orthodox Judaism and opposed to Talmudic theology. It's important to note this, that theologically motivated murderers have risen commensurate with the ascendance of the Zionist ideology and the Zionist colonizers. The Satmar rabbi, the grand rabbi, Zalman Teitelbaum, has written Mamar Shalosheuvos, a treatise on the history and theology of pre-Zionist Orthodox Judaism, extending back centuries. During that time, he demonstrates that the Talmudic theology taught that Jews were forbidden to found a nation-state of any kind until the Messiah appears, and forbidden to engage in military warfare against the Goyim. Prior to the introduction of the heresy of Zionism in the 19th century and Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook's theology, his, name, his surname is spelled K-O-O-K, Cook's theology in the 20th, the religion predicated on the Talmud strictly proscribed founding any so-called state of Israel on any land anywhere on earth and least of all in the God-forsaken sandbox misnamed the Holy Land. The dogma was and remains that only Moshiach could found Israel on earth and no one else was allowed to do so, not even the provocateur whose alias was Ben-Gurion and his clique of atheists, socialists, and Stalinists. And by the way, the principal anti-Zionist texts of Hasidic Judaism are I, that's capital I period, D-O-M-B, that it's the author's surname, D-O-M-B, I Dom's classic book, The Transformation, as well as Yaakov Shapiro's massive and far more recent book, 
that we recommend The Empty Wagon, Zionism's Journey from Identity Crisis to Identity Theft. Among the tiny minority of non-Zionist Talmudic Judaics who have adhered to this doctrine that no Jewish state may be founded prior to the coming of the Messiah, they typically bear no blood guilt for the countless murders of the Arabs of Lebanon and Palestine, which the Zionists have falsely perpetrated in the name of the Jewish people. Let us please remember that. Occupied Palestine is a counterfeit Israel project. This is not Israel. It is not true Israel. And Zionists do not represent or speak for all Judaic persons. This is not to say that Talmudism in its original form prior to the late 19th century and the rise of Zionism was benevolently disposed toward Goyim. Far from it. Israeli scholar Rami Rosen's study, The History of Denial, which appeared in the Israeli magazine Haaretz in 1996, wrote, and we quote, A check of main facts of the rabbinic historiography of the last 1,500 years shows that the picture is different from one previously shown to us. It includes massacres of Christians, mock repetitions of the crucifixion of Jesus that usually took place on Purim, cruel murders within the family, liquidation of informers, often done for religious reasons by secret rabbinical courts, which issued a sentence of Rodef, pursuer, and appointed secret executioners, assassinations of adulterous women in synagogues and or the cutting of their noses by command of the rabbis. So we are hardly suggesting that pre-Zionist Talmudism was benevolent. But what we are saying, in all fairness, is that it is not associated with the Israeli state and the Zionist colony. That is to say, that tiny remnant of anti-Zionist, largely Hasidim, although there are also other non-Hasidic Orthodox Judaics who dissent from the Israeli state. But the vast majority of Talmudic Judaics support the Zionist colony and its ideology. Now I would like to address plausible denial and institutionalized deception. Secrecy concerning what Judaism actually teaches and represents is not as necessary in these days of rabbinic supremacy as it once was, for the reason expressed by Shakespeare in Macbeth, quote, What need we fear who knows it when none can call our power to account? Nonetheless, the propaganda continues, and on the internet there are Zionist rabbinic statements decrying the commentary and interpretations which Rabbi Ginsburg and his like-minded fellow haters, such as Rabbi Shlomo Avner, Rabbi Dovlior, Betsy Gopstein, Michael Ben-Ari, Rabbi Sadia Grama, Rabbi Meir Kahana, Rabbi Yitzhak Shapir, and Yosef Elitzer, and dozens of others, highly placed teachers and educators and influencers. Supposedly, this has been falsely imposed on a blamelessly benign Talmud and ancillary halakhic texts. Well, these condemnations are not worth the paper they were written on. They were often put forth in the form of standard disinformation which only an Am Haaretz would believe, to wit that the Mishnah and Gemara do not constitute rabbinic law, being merely, as we noted earlier, various back-and-forth debates. And as we have shown, this claim is retailed without stating that the Zugat pairs, Zugat is spelled Z-U-G-G-O-T, 
the Zugat pairs and Talmudic hermeneutics, such as the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, each have the force of law at different times under given circumstances due to the fact that a primary rabbinic exegetical principle is situation ethics. Moreover, and this point is key, ladies and gentlemen, a principled Judaic protest contra racist rabbis, in order to have a reforming impact on Orthodox Judaism itself, would have to entail a repudiation of the iniquitous sacred texts upon which the bigotry and incitement to violence are predicated. Yet, there is no such repudiation of Talmudic hate speech in any of the signed declarations by supposed enlightened Orthodox rabbis allegedly attempting to distance their theology from that of a Hitzach Ginsburg or a Meir Kahana. Hence, it is not difficult to determine that the quintessence of the iniquitous Talmudic theology is upheld by these alleged rabbinic opponents of violence-prone, hate-spewing rabbis. What we're seeing here is a deceitful public relations spin on Zionist Talmudic theology in the expectation that this will suffice to disarm critics and quiet any indignation or alarm that manifests among the public at large in the face of the awful truth about the hate speech in the Babylonian Talmud. The famed Rabbi Yosef Haim of Baghdad in Torah Lishma, section 364, put forth the grounds for deception, and we quote, Behold, I set for you a table full of many aspects of permissibility in the matter of lying and deceit, which are mentioned in the words of the sages. Carefully examine each case and extract conclusions from each of them. End quote. In response to this study, Talmudists may attempt to deny everything based on the invocation of their considerable clout and prestige. They will say that the author is lying about Judaism because we say he is lying about Judaism. That's one simple tactic that has succeeded in terminating further investigation. That's all the U.S. media needs to know. Michael Hoffman, his, his educational statements and investigation of the Talmud, he's lying. He's anti-Semitic. How can we prove it? Our ipse dixit, that is to say, because we say so. The recently deceased Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, translator of the uncensored Talmud Bavli, was an illustrious pillar of Chabad Lubavitch Zionist Hasidism. So elevated was his position in Orthodox Judaism that in the city of Tiberias he was named the Nazi, that's N-A-S-I, the Nazi, that is leader, of the reconstituted Sanhedrin. Rabbi Steinsaltz wrote, and we quote, Rabbis are liable to alter their words, and the accuracy of their statements is not to be relied upon. End quote from the Talmud, the Steinsaltz edition, volume 2, pages 48 through 49, published by Random House. In attempting to explain Talmudism's penchant for lying, Judaic scholar Ari Zivovsky states that truthfulness is not an absolute imperative in Orthodox Judaism, and that while, quote, the value of truth permeates the fabric of Judaism, there are other ethical imperatives which are, in fact, often side by side with truth. The problems arise when two or more of these principles come into conflict, 
As is often the case with a legal philosophical issue, the black and white answer is not to be found. End quote. According to Zivovsky, quote, avoiding great embarrassment or financial loss at the hands of the unscrupulous may be legitimate motives for lying. The Talmudic sages were serious about lying in order to recover or keep property from illegitimate hands. End quote. And you can also find a reference to that in the Talmud tractate Yoma 83b. We note with considerable dismay the dissimulation employed to assert, as Steven Spielberg's movie Schindler's List does, that, quote, the Talmud teaches that to save one life is to save the entire world, end quote. That preposterous humanitarian gloss applied to the rabidly ethnocentric Talmud was given credibility both as dialogue in Mr. Spielberg's movie and as the film's motto, reproduced on countless posters that probably still adorn schoolrooms to this day. The motto, dramatized in the film, is purported to be a quote from the Talmud's tractate Sanhedrin 37a, but the Talmud contains no such humanistic, universalist statement. The uncensored Babylonian Talmud in Sanhedrin 37a is concerned only with the welfare of fully human beings, that is to say, those described in its texts as Jews. The actual Talmud tractate, misquoted by Steven Spielberg, reads, Whoever saves a single life in Israel... Scripture regards him as if he had saved the entire world. End quote. This reflects the ruling of Mamamides in his Mishnah Torah, Sefer Nezkin. Quote, Whenever a person kills the soul of another person from Israel, he transgresses a negative commandment, as it says, Thou shalt not murder. End quote. With his narrow definition of who should not be killed, Mamamides nullified the word of God in Genesis 9, verse 6, Exodus 20, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 5, verse 17. Mr. Spielberg's fraud was peddled throughout American culture and educational institutions. What is instructive about this faking is the extent to which the corporate media have been sublimely complicit in circulating this hoax while their fact-checking departments failed to detect the cheat, if indeed they bothered to undertake the obligation to even do so. Another gateway to making nice about the non-Jews is the much-ballyhooed Noahide status that it is said Goyim can obtain to become righteous. However, one would do well to read the fine print of the misnamed Noahide laws. They have nothing to do with the biblical Noah. Under these rabbinic laws, idol worshippers are liable to the death penalty. And that's from uh, Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin 57a. This should not be a source of anxiety, correct? After all, true Christians don't worship idols. Again, consult the fine print. The rabbinic legal authorities of Orthodox Judaism decree that the worship of Jesus Christ is avoda zara. That translates as idol worship. Any non-Jew classed as a Noahide and who worships Jesus Christ as the Son of God is in for a lethal surprise. He or she is liable for the death penalty. Moreover, Mamamides ruled that acceptance of Noahide status on the part of the Goyim is not a choice, 
it is an obligation. Quote, all of the inhabitants of the world are compelled to accept the Noahide laws. If any non-Jew does not accept these laws, he should be killed. And quote from Memamides, Mishnah Torah, Chilkat Merachim Un Melachahim, The Laws of Kings and Wars, section 8, Halakha 10. This passage from Chilkat Melachim deals with battle captives, but in the course of elucidating those laws pertaining to captives, Memamides is drawing on the larger corpus of laws having to do with Gentiles, i.e. the seven laws of the Noahide. Memamides is specifically cited in this regard in Tosef Yom Tov Avat 3 verse 14. The call to execute all those among the nations, that is, the nations are the Goyim, who do not accept the Noahide laws, not just those who are prisoners of war, is indubitably present in Chilchat Melachim 8 verse 10. For non-Judaics, the belief that adhering to Noahide laws renders them righteous Gentiles in the eyes of the Orthodox Talmudists is a perilous fiction. In conclusion, it has been our regrettable duty to bear witness to the appalling truth that Orthodox Rabbinic Talmudism constitutes a virulent and brutally racist dehumanization and detestation of Gentiles, and a concomitant idolization of persons who are Judaic, this being the predominant difference between the two. The denial of the full humanity of non-Judaic persons is the axis upon which the theology of Talmudism and its hate speech is founded and sustained. Jesus Christ took a different path. It was he who declared of the Roman soldier, Greater faith than this have I not seen in all Israel. I'm Michael Hoffman. The text of this broadcast is available in our Revisionist History newsletter number 111. And you can find information on how to order that, and it contains many more references than we were able to include in the broadcast today at revisionisthistory.org. Our offices are located in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. You can write to us at Box 849, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 83816. This episode of Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History is based on 20 years of research, and that resulted in my book, Judaism Discovered, a textbook of 1,100 pages available at revisionisthistory.org. And there is also a paperback condensation of less than 500 pages of that book. And if you have those books in hand, then you will be able to make the world a better place by offering education on Talmudic hate speech, which is as important as exposing any other form of hate speech. Recently, we heard a dialogue between the famed Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson and Mr. Ben Shapiro. And Peterson seemed to be completely out of his depth, talking about whether or not the universalism of Christianity and the particularism of Judaism, and he seemed to be utterly unaware of the facts and data which we have brought forth today, like so many millions of other people. We hope that this will change in the future for the betterment of all people, Judaic as well as non-Judaic. This is Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History. Thank you for joining me today. (laughs) 